Welcome to Tav's Two Cents, the show for average Joe investors where we talk finance and how to achieve success. Hi, welcome to Tav's Two Cents, the show where we talk about finance, business, and achieving success. Today on the show, we have Jake Tanner. Jake has a background in chemistry and environmental technologies and knows a great deal about power. Hope you enjoy the show. Jake, welcome to the show. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. I wanted to get you on because I've really been I've been looking into a lot of power investments and different renewable energy options. And what I've realized is, as a common person that I am, I don't really understand that much about power. So I wonder if you could just go over some of the basics, like what a megawatt is, megawatt hour, how power works in general. So a megawatt or a watt is a unit of power that we use in uh, electrical systems. It's basic basic unit of power, and it's actually a compound unit in itself. It's joules per second, joules being basic unit of energy that we use, and then per second, the unit we use to, to quantify it. So you're saying, when we say a watt, one watt would be equal to a joule per second. So when you go up from there, you could, I mean, it was usually we use, when we talk about power, we're typically talking about kilowatts, which would be a thousand watts or a megawatt, which would be a million watts. So when you talk about, you know, in terms of uh, power plants and energy systems, megawatts is a unit we're usually talking about. And they often rate, you know, power plants in terms of their megawatt capacity. So 500 megawatts, a thousand megawatts. Um, and now megawatt hours it's kind of like the it's the it's how you quantify how much power we use or how much power we produce and it, it's kind of a weird unit so when we say like well that power plant's rated for 500 megawatts so that's saying like oh when that power plant's operating at full power it's putting out 500 megawatts or 500 million joules per second now if it produces that power for over time like say if it produced that power for an hour it will have produced 500 megawatt hours so that's the term we use to sell buy power basically like it's a way of measuring how much power produced over time it's, it's kind of a funny unit it, on paper it's kind of a hard concept to imagine basically you're saying that you know power plants putting out 500 megawatts or 500 million joules per second every second for that hour so for example a way you can think about it is say if a power plant produced is 500 megawatts rate for 500 megawatts at full power is producing 500 megawatts uh, for half an hour and then for whatever reason the output changes and it's only producing 250 megawatts for the next half hour so your total megawatt hour for that hour would be 500 plus 250 divided by two would be something like 325 megawatt hours instead does that clear it up at all it's it's a bit of a it's a tricky unit to use um it takes a little bit of wrestling with the kind of graphs the concept so is it safe to say that when i'm reading about different energy projects and they say this solar farm is going to produce 100 megawatts what they probably mean is that it's going to produce 100 megawatt hours if it operated at full capacity all the time that what when they say that what it actually does mean it's like that solar farm is capable of producing 100 megawatts so that's like so every second it can produce 100 megawatts if it produces that for an hour, it would produce 100 megawatt hours. If it produces that for a year, you'd have to add up how many, how many hours are in a year to get the total output for the whole year. That's interesting. I think it's something that is critical to know when you're looking at these projects because it sounds like there is a very big difference between a 100 megawatt cap maximum production and a 100 megawatt per hour average. Exactly. So for example, when you're talking about a solar farm, you say, well, it's rated at hundred megawatts, but it's only going to produce those hundred megawatts on the sunniest days for at nighttime or cloudy days. You may not see, you know, full capacity of that, that solar farm or those, and your actual megawatt hour rating is going to be 
less than what you would think it is if you, you know it sounds great oh 100 megawatts yeah, but in reality you might only see you know uh, over the course of a year maybe it only add up to you know 25 megawatt hours output on average from that solar farmer yeah and there's a whole another side to this as well which is grid capability i wonder if you could talk a little bit about the other side of the megawatts so where this power is going and how it works when these renewable energy sources are you know intermittently producing power so all the power that like a power plant would put out, it goes out onto our electrical grid, which in Ontario is oper- operated by the Ontario Grid Control Centre, and that's province-wide. And then from there, they, they distribute that power to, to more local areas and in turn, you know, all the way down to the factories and the homes. And every time you turn on a light bulb or turn on your microwave or a, a factory runs a motor, they'll draw power from the power plants, right? So you like, you know, when you get like a light bulb, it's rated for 60 watts. Well, when you turn that light on, it's using 60 watts. You keep that light on for an hour, you've used 60 watt hours. And oftentimes you'll see like, well, you'll see in your power bill, if you read through your power bill, you'll see everything's rated in kilowatt hours. So that's kind of, a, that's the how they, like I was saying before, that's how they quantify how much power you've used. So in terms of how power goes from the power plant to a home, that is the, the connection there. You know, every device we turn on uses electricity and draws power and then your electrical utility operator will add that up over time and bill you each month the amount of power you use. You also mentioned the solar farms and the you know wind and intermittent power sources like that. I think one of the things that's going to touch on is grid stability and grid inertia. So what that's talking about is traditionally power sister power grids and electrical grids have used big spinning turbines, right? to power the grid, we use these big generators and all the power plants, and they all spin at the same speed. They all spin at the same frequency. Now, solar farms, renewables, they don't have that same spinning constant frequency. They're, you know, they're on and off. And the issue that a lot of grid operators around the world are starting to run into as we increase the amount of renewables we put onto the grid is they're not as stable. What I mean by that is like when when there's upsets on the grid, additionally, the big power plants, the big generators, they're always spinning at the same speed. They're always have, they always have that constant motion. They have the ability to compensate for upsets in the grid for a period of time, provide stability and can keep your grid stable at 60 hertz. And the reason you want that is because power grids, they don't like to operate off speed or off frequency. For example, if you lose a few generators or lose a few power plants for some reason, all of a sudden the grid frequency goes up as your other plants try to compensate, but they can only do that for so long. A great example of that would be back in 2003 when we had that blackout. I don't know if you remember back to the blackout there that took out half eastern seaboard of North America. That was all because all because of a, a loss of grid stability, right? There was one, one power plant in the States that uh, tripped offline caused a, a grid upset, caused a, another generator nearby to trip offline, and then it began to cascade and it took out every power plant on the whole eastern seaboard. So as we increase the amount of renewables on the grid, they don't offer that same stability. So it, it, it opens you up to issues, just like I was talking about, you're more susceptible to blackout, more susceptible to you know intermittent power issues. Yeah, you lose that stability. There are ways around that. And as, as we put more renewables on the grid, they are finding ways to deal with these issue, issues rather. The one way to do that is to use a battery storage and inverters. Inverters are a device that basically take the output from a battery and convert it to the alternating current we use on the grid. And when they do that, they can control the frequency that they put that power onto the grid. So that's one way that solar, solar panels, wind farms can, that's one method they can use to, to mimic that stability provided by the big moving generators that we traditionally used in power grids around the world. So from Um, a technical standpoint, 
we can probably assume that moving forward, we're going to need more battery technology throughout different urban areas to accommodate that renewable energy. Yeah, for sure. If we're moving towards renewables, we need a way to both to store power when we're making a lot of it, so we can use that at off-peak times. And that all relies on different ways to store energy, batteries being the big one. As battery technology gets better, the solar farms, the wind farms, the the renewable energies uh, become more reliable. When you talk about batteries, like, have you looked into any of the scale of batteries, like how much, how many megawatts do you think a modern battery could store and push out whenever it was needed? I, <laughs> I'd be shooting in the dark on that one. Uh, I, I do know like battery technology is getting better every day. And, uh, but really it's, I, I'd be guessing it all depends on how big the batteries are and how many batteries you connect together in series. You, I mean, theoretically you could, you know, you can make some huge battery farm, but they'd be able to put out a ton of output, but. I don't know the practicalities of that would be at all. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. Like when I'm looking through different things that I research, I generally see a lot of guys talking about batteries. I see a lot of guys talking about grid repair and grid upgrades. And, you know, just with a little bit of knowledge that you've told me, I can look at these batteries now and think, oh, you know, this is a 10 megawatt battery. That's a substantial size. That would be a huge battery, yes. Yeah, so like with that being said, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was scale and different renewables and what kind of scale they push out like when i say i saw a 100 megawatt solar farm that was the biggest solar farm that i've ever seen an article on i'm wondering what you've seen like with dams and wind and like a wind turbine from what i understand is about one megawatt yeah typically wind turbines for every wind turbine you'll see somewhere between one maybe even up to five megawatts for solar panels yeah 100 megawatts is pretty significant and i know there's some gigantic solar farms in China and India that can put out even more megawatts. How they compare to other energy sources, if you're talking about something like nuclear, nuclear's for the amount you put into nuclear, you get a ton of energy out for like, so like one nuclear power plant, you know, can put out a thousand megawatts, 1200 megawatts, you know, and if you have a few reactors on a site, you can, you know, 5,000, 6,000 megawatts. So obviously a single nuclear site can put out far more power you'd need 6,000 wind turbines to equal one nuclear power plant. So in terms of like uh, scale, uh, yeah, solar and wind, they, they don't they don't compete in that terms of scale to like traditional power sources. But the benefit of them, obviously, they don't put out the same kind of waste either and don't produce the same kind of emission, although they're not perfect either. Yeah, it's certainly debatable because there is, of course, emissions that come from putting together the materials for those types of energy and some of those solar materials that they some of the gases that come off from the construction of a solar panel, you know, have a really large greenhouse effect, they say. With that being said, I'd like to touch on nuclear a little bit more. I know you know you have a great knowledge on nuclear. So I wonder if you could just sort of go over the basics of nuclear, sort of fission, fusion, just because I know people probably sometimes understand nuclear, but maybe not exactly what's going on. Uh, yeah, sure. So, so I know nuclear power... Um... To a lot of people that immediately conscious of, you know, scary thought, you know, nuclear bombs and radiation and all that. And I mean, there are certainly hazards there and we, we have to, uh, there are special precautions we take to, uh, that are taken to deal with those things in the nuclear industry. But the fusion process in general, or sorry, fission process, which is the one we use today, involves splitting uranium atoms. The basic process is uh, you take uh, uranium fuel or uranium fuel bundles put them all close enough together and surround them with a moderator or something to slow the reaction to the point where we can sustain it. Nuclear fission will start occurring. When, what I mean by that 
neutrons shoot around, you know, a reactor core and they'll every now and then they'll hit a, another uranium atom and split that atom, atom apart. And then when that atom splits apart, you both get an energy release and you'll produce more neutrons, which will then go off and, you know, hit another uranium atom and continue that process in a chain reaction. And when you, when you get the, you know, enough uranium together, you get a significant amount of power released out of that fission of the uranium atom. And we capture that to run a, a steam turbine. Yeah, there's a lot of heat that comes off a of uranium atom splitting. <laughs> <laughs> and then fusion, of course, is when you smash two atoms together. Yeah, fusion is the opposite. Um, so where is it? When fission, where we're splitting very heavy elements to get that release of uh, nuclear energy, uh, fusion is the essentially the opposite, where we're fusing very light elements, um, which also results in release of, of nuclear energy. And fusion actually produces more energy. The, the only drawback to fusion, obviously, is it's very hard to do, basically. There's no fusion plants in the world today, right? And there are many projects working on making that a, a feasible option. And I'd like to think it's getting closer because it's both a more, you both get more energy, it's more sustainable and produces far less waste than nuclear fission does. Like nuclear fusion doesn't produce the same, you know, radioactive fuel bundles that you would see from nuclear fission. Fusion's been the, uh, the power of the future for, you know, going on 80 years now. So <laughs> it seems like it's getting closer. We'll see. And, and there... what fusion is, is essentially fusion is what you see. It's, it's what powers our sun, right? It's a, it's a reaction that occurs in the core of our sun. And we're basically trying to replicate that here on Earth by smashing hydrogen atoms together uh, in a hot plasma and contain that somehow with a, within a magnetic field. Yeah, and I think there's also other uses for nuclear that people might not understand. I know you and I talking just before the show, you mentioned clean water was something that you were interested in and, you know, could become a commodity of the future. And that brought up a conversation on nuclear desalination. I wonder if you could talk about that. I've already been interested in uh, desalination in general, just in terms of uh, the future need for it that I, I could see based on, you know, water scarcity around the world and the the decline in freshwater sources basically just due to overpopulation and overuse as time goes on, especially in areas that rely heavily on groundwater and don't have easy access to freshwater sources as the groundwater sources deplete or, you know, inland lakes deplete and aren't replenished at the same rate just due to overuse. I can see a growing need for desalination uh, in general. As far as nuclear desalination goes, that's essentially using a nuclear reactor to produce the energy and the electricity requirements to run a desalination plant and using those two in tandem to both get fresh water and produce electricity, which is an interesting concept because desalination in general, it's an energy intensive process. You got to pump a lot of seawater through uh, either reverse osmosis membranes and filters to basically remove that salt, remove those minerals and coupling out the nuclear power plant would definitely reduce the energy needed and produce even produce energy on the side to, to complement each other nicely. So that could be, you know, perhaps a use of the SMRs, like small modular yeah, that reactors. Be, that would be a great use for like an SMR would be perfectly suited to power a desalination plant. I agree. Yeah, because in Ontario, they just confirmed they were going to build a 300 megawatt SMR. Yeah, I've seen that. It's exciting. They used the Darlington site to build one. Yeah. And that's one of the one of the issues I've kind of 
thought of these SMRs might have is where you're going to put them, right? There's lots of licensing, lots of siting problems, but one benefit we have here in Ontario is we already have nuclear sites with all the licensing and you know, all the studies, all the environmental studies are already done. So you bypass a lot of that red tape. So it's good to see anyway. It's exciting for the province how SMRs uh, progress and the uses we might find from them in the future, especially as we try to wean off fossil fuels and you know reduce our uh, overall emissions. Yeah, I do wonder how capital intensive these SMRs are going to be. I didn't read into the entire article in detail, but when they say a 300 megawatt SMR, that's, I'm assuming, at max capacity. I wonder how reliable these things would be when they run. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, I don't really have a good feel for reliability-wise. I mean, it's a good concept, right? You know, it's essentially small modular reactors. So you're going to build them in factories, take them to a site, assemble them, and, and run them, right? Obviously, there's certainly less capital costs than like a nuclear power plants that we have today, but I don't know how that'll look in terms of reliability or operation. I don't have a good feel for that myself. So I wonder if it's almost kind of like a modular home. You know, you can buy these modular homes, they build the pieces all the same way and just bought on a piece of land somewhere. Yeah, and yeah, and then there's consistency there. So if you had a company that built SMRs, they would essentially be able to move around and maintain all those reactors the same way. It's a it's a good point. I really I don't have a great I don't have too uh, too good a knowledge yeah. on the SMRs right now. So. Yeah, that's okay. So I know you have a background in water testing. I wonder if you could just go over again what you took in school and what you think about the ocean and the state that it's in now. Yes. In college, I took a lot of chemistry and a lot of water testing course, basically more geared toward processing drinking water and wastewater. Um, but as far as what's going on in the oceans right now, like a lot of die-offs and a lot of you know a lot of declining fish stocks, a lot of reef die-offs, and I think there's a lot of factors that tie into that right now. And one of the main ones for the reefs uh, being temperatures, right? Like the the overall temperatures of our oceans are increasing, and it might only be a couple degrees, but when you in terms of it doesn't sound like much, but in terms of the ocean, it's quite a bit, right? Considering how stable they've been for so many years. So in part being driven by climate change and warming oceans, the other things obviously that are affecting our oceans, the health of our oceans and our water systems. Overpopulation is a big one. Overpopulation affects everything. So, as, you know, with overpopulation comes overfishing, uh, overdevelopment, and even things like tourism can have, you know, detrimental effects to, you know, coral reefs and stuff. And when cruise ships drive by, all kinds of boats in the area. And on the other side of that, there's all the plastic waste, right? I'm sure you've heard of like the Pacific Garbage Patch, which is, you know, I think I think we're only truly starting to realize the, the enormous effects of the microplastics maybe having all over the world, right? And in, in not only in animals, but also in us. Yeah, for sure. So I think one thing that I want to start doing with the show is just ask at the end a generalized question of what do you think we may see in the next 10 years that maybe wouldn't be something that most people would expect. It can uh, be about power, it can be about climate change, it can be about whatever you want. Yeah, I think we've touched on a couple of those things already. So the one thing I see that a lot of people may not be you know, as aware of is a, a coming water shortage, right? Like a coming water scarcity crisis. Um, and we're not going to see that here in Canada, not for a long, long time. Anyway, we've got so much fresh water in Canada, it's, you know, but there's parts of the world that are already in serious trouble, right? And it's, uh, it's already becoming a... a a major issue places like you know lots of places there's a number of places in africa so like egypt 
South Africa, India, and even China are all starting to face, uh, you know, water shortages. So I could definitely see, a, you know, a need for ways to reduce fresh water. And we've already touched on that with like the desalination plants. And as the time of that, um, I know there's a growing push. And I think people, I think more and more people are starting to get on board with the, as we see more severe weather effects, more severe, you know, climate problems, flooding, droughts, et cetera, wildfires. I think we're going to see a continued push or uh, not a continued push, but um, push towards, again, towards uh, nuclear energy and as, a, as a solution to reducing our overall emissions, you know, to get us off coal and natural gas and things like that. Uh, uh, nuclear energy combined with renewables like uh, solar, uh, continued use of hydroelectric as well. Yeah. So from what I see, I could see like uh, we talked about the SMRs, which I don't know a ton about right now, but I could definitely see um, a push for that in the future. I could see SMRs becoming a, a, vi a good viable option future to replace a lot of the electricity needs of current society. If we can get the cost down and get over some of the siting issues and licensing issues, which may become easier to do as governments become more willing to look, take another look at nuclear based on the need to get our CO2 emissions under control. Yeah, for sure. I think what you're getting at there is basically low carbon energy. We don't want to be burning fossil fuels if it's going to cause climate change. And I think that that's definitely something I could see happening in the future as well. What's interesting to me is based on your background and knowledge of power is the way that that energy is going to get spread out across the country. Because when I do this show, I look for different places, different trends, things that people could invest in early, such as like battery technology or, you know, lithium or graphene or whatever it takes to build these batteries. If you can get into a mine and that commodity becomes high demand in the next 10 years, because you can foresee now that we're going to need more batteries to sustain the grid. Then these are the kind of conversations that I like to have. Yeah, I agree. I yeah, as far as the investment opportunities, uh, I mean, I think it's definitely there. I mean, I think some of these are no secret already. I could see, you know, there's there's growth in those areas for sure. I don't think we're gonna get off, you know, oil and coal totally anytime soon. There's always gonna be a need for that somewhere for for quite a, some time still. But as time progresses, I think you'll see the shift towards uh, renewables and nuclear accelerate. How much energy do you generally get from a dam? It all depends on the size of the dam. So it really is anywhere from like, uh, you know, a small dam, maybe, you know, 10, 20 megawatts to something like uh, Niagara Falls, which, you know, can produce tons of power, right? You know, even in Ontario today, like our grid is divided between mostly nuclear and hydroelectric, uh, some natural gas plants and some wind. Uh, I think uh, hydroelectric in Ontario still produces around 30 to 40% of the power in the province. Yeah, that's pretty wild. And you mentioned as well, just, you know, with us talking before that hydro dams can actually pump water back up during times of excess power and then let the water flow through during times of low current. Yeah, it's a, a similar idea to the batteries, right? You're going to use, uh, take that power when you don't need it, use it to run some pumps, pump your water back up into your reservoir. You know, when there's a high demand in the middle of the day, you can use that, that water that you've, you know, stored essentially to power your dam. I think the issue is going to be, you know, what do you do when there's no wind and no sun with all this renewable energy? But it, could, you know, the solution could be batteries. Yeah, and we're back. Yeah, I guess getting back to uh, we can use uh, methods of storing that energy for times when it's not there, right? So yeah, batteries. You mentioned the uh, the dams are just now. 
And that also brings up the need that there's always going to be a need for like uh, something to carry the base load, like something to always be there. And that's where something like nuclear would come in. And that's, you know, it's going to be reliable and nonstop and keep your grid up and running essentially when maybe the wind and the solar aren't, aren't producing what you need. Yeah, for sure. And I think in a lot of places in the world right now, that baseline power is coal. They're trying to get away from that. So, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out over the next 10 years, 20, 30 years, as they try to move away from their baseline power. Because it's a lot tougher for a lot of these developing countries to, you know, to develop and build, you know, a you know, shiny new nuclear plant. Um, there's all kinds of issues with that, right? Like, uh, so I don't know how that's going to look with uh, some of these countries. I think it's going to be hard to escape, you know, that the cheap, easy coal generators in a lot of these places for a long time still, which is unfortunate, but I don't see an easy solution there. It's going to be very difficult. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, China's, they're producing a ton of coal right now. So burning a ton of coal as they industrialize their country. So, I mean, I'm not sure what the solution is, but it's definitely going to be something to keep an eye on for sure. But yeah, with that being said, I think that we covered a lot. You want to say anything you've been thinking about? No, I think we covered a lot of ground. All I got. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me, Joe. Yep. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you. Thank you.